Welcome to Urban Plant Health Network's podcast series, The Good, The Bad and The Bugly. European honeybees are important pollinators for both crops and gardens. Plus, they provide beekeepers with honey. However, they can be problematic for urban gardeners, especially around children and pets. Honeybees can also often outcompete our native species of pollinators. So what can gardeners do to attract more native bees? To answer this, we're joined in the Urban Plant Health Network studio by Robert McDougall from Caesar Australia. He's a research scientist who specialises in sustainable agriculture and has a deep understanding of native bees. Robert, thanks for your time. Oh, thanks for having me. Robert, native bees. I understand there's a few different species in Australia. How many? There's around 1,700 that have been given names by scientists, but we estimate there's another three or 400 more species that just haven't been found yet and probably aren't really known. So, yeah, there's potentially as many as 2,000 native bee species out there and we only know about three-quarters of them. So lots of different kinds out there. While there's many species, though, a lot of them to the naked eye may look fairly small and indistinct, kind of just kind of little black specks you might see buzzing around but we still do have some pretty dramatic bees of our own here as well so we have things like the teddy bear bees which are kind of big and fluffy which is where they get their name from we have things like blue banded bees you can also probably guess how they get their name they look a bit like a the kind of honeybee we'll all be familiar with but with kind of bluish whitish bands on them we also have various shiny metallic looking bees like the carpenter bees and um, halactid bees and that type of thing Robert, that's an incredible number of bees and an amazing variety. Before we delve into them a little bit further, what actually defines an insect as a bee? What defines a bee is that it's a vegetarian wasp. Bees and wasps, as well as ants, are um, part of the insect order called the Hymenoptera, which is defined by basically having a little narrow pinched waist that you'd be familiar with. If you kind of imagine the segments of an insect, you've got the head, and the thorax and then behind that they have an abdomen which is kind of like an extra segment that sticks out the back and as I said the hymenoptera is the bees and the wasps and the ants and the bees are really defined as the vegetarian group in that so while wasps are predators um, and ants are obviously carnivorous organisms as well bees are yeah vegetarian throughout their life cycle subsisting almost entirely on stuff produced by flowers so pollen and nectar and having specific adaptations to collect that so things like they'll be quite hairy so that they can have pollen and such stick to their bodies that's really what defines them as as vegetarian wasps that's a great distinction and easy to understand so does that mean they're also stingless There is a a wide range of bees, obviously, out there. Some bees have stingers, so we know, for example, honeybees have stingers. But no, most native bees do have some capacity to sting. They're not likely to do so unless you really annoy them, and they're not particularly dangerous, most of them, but most of them do have the capacity to sting. Stingless native bees is a concept that a lot of us are probably familiar with because they're they're almost the exception to the rule in their lack of sting. And the particular species that people refer to as the native stingless bee, also called the sugar bag bee, is one of the few native uh, bee species that are actually social. What 
may, I guess, be a surprise to someone with only occasional interest in bees is that most bees actually live solitary lives. We're also familiar with honeybees that live in these big organised hives and kind of imagine them to be the typical bee, but really they're very atypical. um, We only think about them because they're the cultivated version of them. Most bees live by themselves or in kind of small groups where each female lays and cares for her own eggs. But yeah, honeybees and then the native stingless bee, Tetragonula carbonaria, are kind of exceptions to this. And the reason we know about them is because they're able to be cultivated and and used by humans. And yeah, Tetragonula carbonaria is one of only two species of native bee that are really domesticated to any meaningful extent. So they're stingless, but they're kind of the exception in multiple ways. Robert, what sort of native bees are most commonly found in Melbourne? The most common native bees in Melbourne are probably the halactid bees. These are small bees, probably typically averaging around a centimetre long, and they have a shiny metallic look to them. They live not in hives, they're solitary bees that typically live in burrows, and so they'll burrow in soil and that type of thing. Other bees that you might find in Melbourne, you might find masks bees. These are also relatively small, probably also about a centimetre long on average bees that are mostly black, but some of the most distinctive ones of them have bright yellow patches on them, including patches on their backs, as well as patches across their face, which gives them the name masked bees. And they um, have quite interesting nests because another common name for this group of bees is cellophane bees because they cover the inside of their nests with a, uh, a material that looks a bit like cellophane once it's dried. And so you can sometimes, you might see a little hole in a tree or something like that and you might say, oh, it looks like there's some plastic in there. How'd they end up in there? That's in fact not plastic, but a substance produced by these colleted bees. Another interesting one that's relatively rare in suburban Melbourne, but it can still be found if you're lucky, is the leaf cutter bees. And once again, these common names are pretty obvious in their origin. They're called leafcutter bees because they line their nests with bits they cut out of leaves. And you'll you'll maybe notice that you've got a, um, a leafcutter bee in your yard if you start to see leaves of your various plants with little circular holes cut out of them. And if you're ever lucky enough to see one in the process of actually cutting a leaf, it can look quite humorous. It almost looks like a cartoon character chewing through a corn cob or something. They just kind of go bite, 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 bite. In a circle to cut this circle out of these leaves and and take them into their nests and this doesn't really harm the plants at all but can look really cool and and can be an interesting sign that these larger fluffier bees are around in your backyard. Robert absolutely fascinating cellophane bees leaf cutter bees I had absolutely no idea this range existed at all do they depend upon native plants? So there's quite a lot of diversity within in native bees. A lot of them are relatively generalist. So native plants are good for a few specialised species, but for the majority of bees and probably the bees that we're going to be finding in suburban gardens, in Melbourne in particular, they can utilise a whole lot of different types of plants. Native plants are things like eucalypts and banksias that can have like large numbers or very large flowers that produce lots of nectar are pretty good for native bees. But um, many of them can also be, be quite happy with things we might have planted in our garden, things like tomatoes and eggplants and such that might be attractive to them, flowering plants. And also the other thing 
that can be really useful and helpful in sustaining these bees is flowering weeds. Now, this can be particularly important because a lot of the time the things we might call weeds, and I'll put that in air quotes there, are going to be some of the earliest flowering plants in a spring. So things like dandelions that might just pop up in a lawn that a lot of, um, I guess, keen gardeners might be keen to get rid of, they can actually serve as a really good food source for these bees. So they're not native, obviously, dandelions. And yeah, like I said, many gardeners will consider them a weed, but they can be really helpful as a food resource to these bees as well. So lots of different things that appeal to them. Robert, what about further up the food chain? Are there native bird species in particular that are dependent upon their continued existence? We have whole groups of birds that are referred to as the bee eaters. Bees, while obviously being important as pollinators, they do provide an important food source for birds and other native animals to feed on. Unfortunately, within urban areas, a lot of these things like the bee eating birds are pretty rare just because it's not a particularly good environment for them, in part because bee numbers are probably fairly low compared to um, natural environments. But yeah, bees certainly form an important part of the ecosystem them both for the plants they pollinate and for the uh, the birds and other things that eat them yeah. Robert what then can urban gardeners do to attract native bees? Bee hotels I hear about those what are they and what do they achieve? Bee hotels I guess provide one of the two things that bees are going to need to become attracted to your garden. One of the two things is food in the form of flowers and the second thing is habitat. Native bees have a wide range of different habitat requirements, so what they're going to nest in effectively. So in the case of some bees, a lot of bees will burrow in soil, for example, so having undisturbed soil that they can burrow in might be important habitat to them. Others will nest in things like cavities in trees or in hollow twigs and that type of thing. And um, it's for bees like this where bee hotels can be potentially helpful because a lot of yards these days aren't going to have dead trees which are slowly decaying that bees can nest in and that type of thing. So that's where the idea of an artificial bee hotel comes in. So a bee hotel can be super simple. It can be anything uh, like it can just be a block of wood with some holes drilled in it that take the place of natural hollows in trees that bees can use as a safe place to lay their eggs. You often see these more complicated, more diverse ones that people will set up in community gardens and such. You'll kind of have a box which is open at one side and we'll have a whole lot of different kind of substrates in there. So you might have pine cones, you might have dry leaves, you might have some wooden blocks with holes in. And this is all just to provide a diversity of different habitats that bees can use to nest in and provide the second resource they need along with food, that being nesting resources. Um, You need to be careful with what they're made of. So, for example, there was a major retail chain a few years ago that was selling bee hotels made of plastic. That's a terrible idea because, of course, plastic doesn't really let moisture in and out, and so moisture would build up in these and they would potentially be hotbeds for fungus that would kill the bees. So that's something you need to be careful about. Make sure you make them of something like wood and that type of thing. And also, if you're expecting your bee hotel to be in use year on year, it might be good to put in something like a removable lining to it. So, for example, if you're going to make a bee hotel by drilling holes in a piece of wood, you can either line those holes with, say, cardboard tubes or little bits of bamboo, something like that. Something that between years you can remove from it just to stop a build-up in there of, of things like fungus and mites and other things that might harm the bees. 
I guess something else worth mentioning about bee hotels, they will attract things other than bees. One of the, the biggest things that I've found to be present in bee hotels in suburban gardens is actually wasps. This is still great. Wasps can play an important role in gardens as well. They can act as pollinators. They can act as predators or parasites of various garden pests. So if you set up a bee hotel and you end up with wasps in it, I certainly wouldn't complain. But um, yeah, something else to keep in mind as well. Robert, earlier you mentioned that native bees are essentially solitary creatures. That's an important thing I imagine to understand in regards to bee hotels because people will go, well, I don't really want a hive in my backyard. It's not a hive at all. It's just an opportunity for individual insects largely to nest in the one spot and leave you alone, I'd imagine. Yeah, exactly. You're never going to see, with these solitary bees, you're never going to see a swarm of them. Occasionally, the native stingless bee, if you've got a hive of them, they can form a swarm, but given we're mostly focused on Melbourne here, that's irrelevant anyway, because unfortunately Melbourne's too cold for those guys. So what you're just going to get if you set up a bee hotel in your garden and it's working effectively is you're going to, every now and then, you might see a little tiny black bee kind of, or something else, maybe something more colourful if you're lucky, kind of flying past or sticking its head out of the little hole and looking around before it goes off on a foraging trip but it's not going to be anything that might give you a cause to worry even if you get wasps in there most of these wasps they're not like european wasps they're not social wasps that are going to swarm they're just going to be solitary wasps they're going to go out and hunt their prey to feed to their larvae whatever that may be be it caterpillars or spiders or something like that and bring it back into their nests you're just going to basically be sharing your backyard with a few small little native creatures that you may never even see unless you're very observant and looking for them specifically but will be having a great influence on your backyard through pollinating and yeah potentially providing a food source to to birds and, and reptiles and other things that may be in your yard. Are native bees, as well as European bees, are they the main pollinators that we have in our environment? So they're one of the main pollinators, but they're certainly not the only ones. I've mentioned already that wasps can serve as pollinators, beetles, potentially even ants at certain times of the year can serve as pollinators. But the one I I really like, and which is probably the most important group of pollinators in backyards, after you introduced European honeybees is actually the hoverflies. So these aren't bees, they're true flies, so related to the kind of house flies and such we might see around our homes, but they look a lot like bees. Many of them have the black and yellow coloration we expect of bees, but they're identifiable because, as the name implies, they can hover. And they're really cool to see them as you see them approaching a plant. You can see them hanging there completely motionless in the air as they work out how they're going to approach the plant until they go zipping towards it. They're some of the most abundant pollinators that we find in urban areas. And as well as being pollinators as adults, they're also really useful because their larvae, which look kind of like little caterpillar type things, are actually predators of aphids. So if you're uh, someone who's uh, got aphids in your yard, you'll be very glad to see a hoverfly buzzing around there because it quite possibly means it's going to have laid its eggs and had its larvae hatch out on your roses where your aphids are and that this voracious little larvae larva might be crawling around there right now chomping down on all those aphids you've got so that's another example of of an important pollinator that also has other important uses to a backyard garden as well robert mcdougall from caesar australia you have a really deep understanding and passion for our native bees thanks for sharing many insights with us and joining us for this urban plant health network podcast thanks very much for your time thank you for listening to the good the bad and the bugly. 
For more episodes in this series, find us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear your feedback, so please leave a comment or rating and share this series with your friends and family. All information is accurate at the time of release. This podcast was developed for the Urban Plant Health Network.